and welcome to Built Modular, a podcast brought to you by Box Modular. Today, we're talking about building tomorrow, navigating architectural challenges, and embracing modular innovation. I'm your host, Michelle Dawn Moody, and I'm so excited to bring on a very special guest for this conversation today. Paul Doherty is president and CEO of TDG, the Digit Group. Paul, thank you so much for being with me today. I uh, pre- appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk with yeah, you. Yeah, I'm really Michelle. looking thank forward you. to this conversation. Before we jump in, can I ask you to give us a brief bio, if you can, please? A brief? Um, that would be hard only because I am uh, the living personification yes. of Forrest Gump. <laughs> Uh, I've been in the right place at the right time throughout my career, uh, and I'm just, uh, I guess I'm Irish and I'm lucky, but I'm an architect and builder uh, that has now grown into being an owner of buildings and property and infrastructure as a real estate developer. Uh, But we do things a lot differently than most real estate developers in that we own things on behalf of governments. Uh, So uh, mostly in the Middle East, throughout China, uh, Australia, um, and of course, little bits and pieces here in the U.S., which we'll talk about why it's not a big deal over here, what's called smart cities, which means that we have technology that's integrated into the built environment in order to provide a more inspiring urban experience. And that's uh, a little bit of that. Just a little. I'm sure we could talk for hours probably with all of, of the resume that you have, but let's get started with why we're here. So with the world of architectural design and development, it is very intricate. So what are some of the key challenges that architects face from conceptualization to execution? And then can you share your personal journey in the industry and then some takeaways from navigating through these complexities? Great question from the standpoint of it's a reimagining about what architecture is, because people think, uh, you know, the the average person think, oh, you, you design and you build buildings. And it's like, not really. What we do and the essence of really great, uh, you know, design is that we design for a preferred future, meaning that there are ways of how you can pull together different types of materials and ways of thinking that can help create environments that inspire. And I think that is the greatest challenge to any architect. Um, we are challenged with budgets and rules, especially in certain cities where they have zoning and old code and everything. That's the back end of it. But I think what's really, uh, you know, the the essence of this reimagining of, of the design profession is that uh, we are no longer looking at being a person that does drawings. Uh, we're no longer the people that do 3D now over the past 20 years and how to communicate design intent to the, to the builders, because that's our job. On behalf of the owner, we interpret what that need is and then hand that off to the constructors who are great at what they do, including all the sub-trades, things like plumbers and electricians and, and HVAC people. We need to be better at explaining what that is and what's happening today and what I've seen throughout my career is that we've had these periods of change. So we're right now in this middle of this digital transformation that we're one of the last major industries to actually take hold of of these digital tools that are helping us express design intent to the constructors. And we're getting better at it, which means that we have more complexity as you mentioned, you know, the the idea that we need to do it faster, potentially cheaper. And this is where we're looking at other industries now. And I've always done that throughout my career. I looked at another industry to make sure how could we do things digitally with two-dimensional drawings called CAD, right? That was an interesting period because that was an electronic pencil. 
moving into the world of 3D allowed us then to get into more detail. So from 2D to 3D was a big jump, and we're still going through growing pains with that. Because again, when you're trying to get design intent, those are the deliverables that architects do. But one of the really cool things that I'm seeing about the profession is people are now starting to take a look at other industries, including social media. How can we break things down in a way that can better express what we want on behalf of our customers? And what we're doing is, uh, just, just for instance, we can take little, almost like TikTok type of ways of showing people this is the work that needs to be done today. And it becomes a collective whole, almost like like what Leonardo da Vinci said, everything's connected to everything. So I'm learning how to see again, Michelle, and you know that you know I'm in the middle part to, to end part of my career, and I feel like we're starting all over again. And this is the beautiful thing about about the design and construction industry because we're leapfrogging ourselves. We're not going through those growing pains because we can we can look at the outside, bring it inside, so that when we see things like games, right? You think video games, you know, what does that have to do with the construction industry? everything. Why? Because I have a 13-year-old son, and he started out at three, four, and five years old with this thing called Minecraft. He was designing his own environment, right? And then, of course, the progression is to go to Roblox and then Fortnite. That's that's the pecking order in the world of gaming. So I started to take a look at gaming and start to say, huh, the design intent is no longer about just the built environment. It's also about the digital asset, it's no longer just about explaining to a contractor what's going on, because if you can stick my 3D object of what needs to be built in the real world, I've just created a digital twin of what's in reality. So I can put that onto a thing like a gaming engine, and I'm now giving a new experience to people. So we're looking now at a different type of approach of we have multiple parties, multiple audiences that now we can actually tap into. And there's never been a greater time to be an architect than right I now. I love how you say you're you're seeing things kind of with a new light, you know, all over again. And how exciting it is to be in this industry for as long as you have been. But, you know, everything's changing in really good ways. But let's take a look at the flip side for a minute because it's not all butterflies and roses. <laughs> Regulatory compliance uh -huh. and project management bottlenecks, they can often impede progress and innovation in the construction industry. So how do these hurdles manifest in your experience? And what strategies do you think are essential when it comes to overcoming them? Uh, the bane of my existence. But, you know, um, rules were put into place because, and, and the reason why I'm licensed architect is because we're there to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the general public, right? You don't want your building falling down, right? And hurting people. Um, so one of the ways that we look at what's called authorities having jurisdiction or a AHJs is that these are fiefdoms and those fiefdoms are all over the US, let alone all over the world, which means that there's a relationship of I am the king, you must do what I say, which then could be that during the design process, maybe you did not interface with that plan examiner. Maybe you did not interface with the permit guy. Um, and he's seeing things for the first time when he goes out to site and he can stop a project. So yeah, there are those issues. But what we are finding with, a, with the AHJs is that they can either be seen as an impediment, which is the scarcity mindset, or they can actually be seen as partners, which is the abundance mindset. And that's the ethos about how we work globally on not just an individual home or just on an individual building, but in our world, we have to deal with contextualization. 
meaning again, everything is connected to everything, meaning that that home has adjacencies to other homes that make up a square block. That square block is part of a district. The district is part of a city. Now, when you start to think through that, the storytelling about how you go through that process is going to be key, which means bring those people, bring, bring the code, bring those things into place sooner rather than later. Get them involved in the storyline because now they're part of the actors and they feel part of it. And then you make them human. You're not making them, it's code number 2.5, you know, in some chapter. It's, Joe, you know, what can we do to actually solve this problem so that you feel satisfied on behalf of the safety, welfare, and well-being of, of the general public, and my client gets what they want, right? And the storytelling is really interesting because now your buildings become part of that story. Your infrastructure becomes part of that story. Um, when we do our economic studies, we focus in on transportation first, not housing. The reason why is because when we look at transportation, it drives the housing model. Right. So we call it transit synergized development. And it's one reason why when we do work, uh, you know, at the national level, the first people I go to are the Department of Transportation. Then we go to HUD. Because when we start then to see how humans live, the transportation part of that is key. Now, what happened was we abdicated roles as designers by by letting urban planners and the DOT just run roughshod over the real needs of neighborhoods. Like, look what happened in New York City. Right. I mean, those neighborhoods were destroyed by putting in like the Brooklyn Queens Expressway or the Long Island Expressway because there was a need for the greater good. But they never had a conversation with those neighborhoods. And literally, they just wiped out certain neighborhoods. And that's happening in a lot of different places around the world now. Understanding that the AHJs become an important piece of being able to deliver. And that's, I think, the biggest thing in our industry is don't look at them as impediments, but again, with that abundance mindset, how can they enable things? So a case in point would be what's happening in places like Singapore. In Singapore, 1998, we put together a system with them at the government level with a group called the Building Construction Authority or the BCA. They're, they're a regulatory group. They put in policy and those types of things. In order to help the speed of getting your permit, we, uh, in 1998, we, we, we put in a online system called Cornet. And what happens is a designer can actually upload, like let's say a floor plan, to get a first preliminary look. Is there enough egress? Is there, you know, is the hallway too long that you have to put sprinklers in? All those stupid things that you would go with a plan examiner first and he'd reg mark it up and then you'd have to come back. You don't have to come back. One time you got rid of all the big stuff, let's move on to the next. So that saved an enormous amount of time and effort uh, that has been tried here in the U.S. Uh, with spectacular failures everywhere. But really where we're, uh, where we're focused in on right now um, is making people that are usually on the opposite side of the fence and bring them on your side of the fence through storytelling. And that is uh, probably the best advice I can give out there. And, and how you do that can be as simple of picking up the phone, having a Zoom call, or actually knocking on a door and sitting in front of the person and start that relationship. Because worldwide, you think the design and construction industry, right? It's a $4.7 trillion industry annually, globally, right? Here in the US, about 1.5. That includes industrial, commercial, housing, all that stuff. You would think it with a, you know, with, with that type of power, you know, economic power, that we would be sailing right through and doing all things. It comes down to people. 
and how you treat them and how you have that relationship, including people that you've never met before, because the responsibility of creating that preferred future is thinking through how you can create an environment for people to feel safe, feel secure, be inspired, right? Which means that that responsibility comes down to not just the individual, which is very important, but the collective whole. How as a community, how can you affect that in a way that can provide a positive out outcome rather than the scarcity model of, I have a limited amount of time to get this building done. There's, a, you know, I'm getting ripped off and these people are doing this, blah, 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 blah. Rise above it. Let's have yeah, a conversation. Yeah, great point. And really back to relationships. And there's a, a line that I know that I will screw up, <laughs> but some to the fact of, you know, we don't do business with other businesses. We do business with people. And behind every business, we sometimes forget we're dealing with people. You know, we're we're human, they're human, and you know, building those relationships is so key. So moving on to modular solutions, can you provide real-world examples or personal insights on how prefabricated components and adaptable structures are effectively addressing challenges in construction processes and enhancing design flexibility? And then how do you see these modular solutions really shaping the evolution of the architectural landscape? Oof, a lot there. <laughs> loaded questions, so many different. Well, no, but but really, really important ones and timely. Um, so when I was living in China, uh, we were uh, challenged uh, with being able to meet demand. Modular or what's called industrialized construction is just a different delivery system. That's all it is. It's not the big, you know, hit a button and a, and a house pops out. Um, that's not the truth. What is the truth is that we need as a industry to, to reimagine and almost unlearn what modular brings when you hear that or prefabrication, you know, panelization, all these different building types uh, of product, not project. And I think that's the biggest thing that people can take away from this particular podcast is we need to start reimagining that we are not in the business of building buildings. If you get into the industrialized stream, you're in the business of creating product that can create whatever you want, be it a hospital, be it an educational facility, be it whatever. So we took that to heart uh, in Shanghai, um, and I partnered up with a gentleman after meeting him, expats hanging out in Shanghai, and he started talking that he's an engineer and that he had a prefab business in Australia, which is where he was from, for meeting the demands of workforce housing for Reno Tinto, one of the big mining companies down there. And he said, you know, mining companies are, you know, they're, they're kind of cheap when it comes to workforce housing, but we try to do the best we can. But I know with a little bit of insight, a little bit of design aesthetic, we can actually create these things that are beautiful. They don't have to look like mobile homes because that's the stigma that factory-based uh, you know, buildings have. So we put our minds together. It took us about eight years to pull together the right types of lines, uh, what's called CNC machines, which are robotic to make things happen. Uh, and we created beautiful, aesthetically pleasing 2,500 square foot homes, fully finished, ready to go in seven minutes, every seven minutes. So Forbes said, show me. And we did. And they did a beautiful, uh, you know, feature on us about how come we're not doing it here in the States, which gets back to your authorities having jurisdiction problem. They have their set ways of doing things. 
the banks also loan money based on very, very predictable deliverables. In the case of architecture, it's schematic design, design development, construction documents, meaning you have a concept you, you know, and you get paid on, on the concept. Then you get paid to massage it to the client's liking. And then you have construction documents, the, the, the design intent that's communicated to the builder. That all goes away when you start talking about product. Right? Because it's not about a project. So how does a bank know when to pay when it's mostly front loaded? All of the work that's usually done in the field is now done in a factory in a controlled environment, which means you're getting higher quality. You're getting a better product at the end of the day that's going to have sustainable qualities about it and yada, yada, yada. Where you make or lose money when you get into this world of, of this new process is in the field. You will either make your money when you lose your money. And that means you need to educate both the authorities having jurisdiction that are usually out on the site to do things like, was the electrical put in right? Was the plumbing put in right? Well, we did it in the factory and it's all closed up. So how do you get them to trust maybe a video with QR codes on individual things? And then he sees the QR code. Okay, that's what was done in the factory. I can look on YouTube and I can see that it's done. Or they come into the factory and they do their inspections there. And now they're just making sure that the quality is in place and that things are connected together in the field. It's a different process, which means there's an educational process to AGH, right? But I'm sorry, AHJs. But where it gets really, really funky is training the local people that are used to swinging hammers and sawing things that they're putting product in place. Uh, we have a technology that we developed uh, originally in China um, and uh, our factory was pumping out a product that did not have adhesives or fasteners, things like screws and, and nails, because we did a groove system, a patented groove system that proved out in the field to be miraculous. The doors, when you slam the doors, sound like a Mercedes-Benz car door. I mean, it was just real solid. It had that quality thing to it, right? So uh, we did a run of 4,000 homes uh, for a developer off, uh, off the coast of Brisbane called Russell Island in Australia. And that's what really put us on the map. These are gorgeous mass mass customization, meaning little tweaks we could make because we could input it with our 3D models that would drive our machines. And we were riding high. Until what happened? Well, just before COVID, uh, we did too well. We were a foreign company on Chinese soil and we were doing really good. So we were, uh, a standard enterprise was put together. Uh, we trained those people and we were given a nice fat check and told to go away. We were one of those stories. So what's happened since, uh, just to put a little bit of, uh, you know, where are we at today? Um, we are looking for uh, an opportunity for a business watching how others in this space have failed. Katera probably being the most famous one, you know, $2 billion of SoftBank money and they evaporated. Why? Because they focused on projects, not products. Uh, Skender, you know, my friends up in Chicago, they shut down their division. And you're hearing uh, even like this last quarter, just all these initiatives that started out sounding really good that are falling flat. Like, so what's wrong with our industry? Why can't we do that here in the US? And it's going to come down to, again, this mindset that think product and how you put things together Rather than project, I have a client and I got to put up a home, right? Once you get into that mindset means, are you really a builder anymore? Should you be thinking about supplying and educating the local general contractors in the area so that they can actually be part of the process and their subcontractors? Because the big thing I hear is if you're doing it all in the factory, what happens to plumbers? Guess what? I, I still need their skill sets. 
maybe not put in place, but how do you do the connections? Because the biggest thing in, in the industrialized construction world is if anything flows inside of that facility, it's a problem and you better be on it, meaning water for plumbing, meaning air for air, you know for heating and air conditioning, and most importantly, power. So the conduits and how you put those things together now become a higher priority for delivering a quality product. That's something that not a lot of people think about until it gets out in the field and that's where they lose money, right? So the more that you can think ahead, it's called Design for Manufacturing and Assembly or DFMA. That's where an educational uh, uh, you know, uh, tsunami needs to happen for the design professions because the way that you design for traditional construction is much different when you front load things. It also then provides the opportunity for better creativity because if you can control it, out in the field, if there's a special design, they're, they're literally trying to figure it out on the clock. Inside of a controlled environment, you're going to get the right deal. So there's a lot of positives in there. There's a lot of challenges, especially in this market. But where I'm starting to see some real growth is what we've proposed to the Ukrainian uh, 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 government. Uh, I've been introduced and have met with officials uh, in Washington on behalf of the U.S. Commerce Department who introduced us to the Ukrainian embassy. And we have been working with them, having multiple uh, you know, ways of rethinking what is Ukraine going to be in the future. Um, part of the issues, of course, is that it's still a hot war, but there are areas of Ukraine, especially in the West, that have towns that may have had their hospital blown up, or maybe it's an elementary school. So the needs are stacked differently, where in eastern Ukraine, it doesn't exist anymore. They've done a Syria. Russians literally just wiped it out. So that, that's a full rebuild. So what's challenging and what's also fun for me is going through the process of rethinking, are we reconstructing Ukraine, which was not a, not a thing you want to do, or are we reimagining? So using this idea of product, um, what we're doing is looking at showcasing. And I've met with certain mayors um, uh, in Washington that have come over from Ukraine to say, what, what's, a, what's an approach, what's a solution? Because the biggest thing they want is to repatriate all the refugees. But why do the refugees want to come back? So this is where we're going into taking a Lego approach, but not Legos themselves. Like, it's kind of fun now that Fortnite and Lego <laughs> have come together. That's wild. And the fact that yesterday, took um, uh, Fortnite uh, has now majority rule of Disney. Wow. This is going to be really interesting. Yesterday was announced, yeah, $1.5 billion investment. So there's going to be some interesting things on the tech side of things, meaning gaming. But if you think through gaming, you think through the idea of, of taking components and being able to put things together. Maybe there's a town that had 50,000 people in Western Ukraine. Uh, let's say they're down to about 5,000 because all the refugee because of the war and everything. But their hospital's blown up and they had a 800-bed hospital. Well, you don't need an 800-bed hospital. You don't need to reconstruct that in order to attract people back and then service the 500 people that are there. But what would happen if you built like a clinic and you did it in such a way, in a modular way, that it met the needs for now? It, all of a sudden, they start to see the demographic that people are starting to repatriate and come back into that town. Maybe it grows up to 1,500. Well, that's another module. Or maybe it reverses. This town can't be saved. Well, we can deconstruct it without having to demolish it and then reuse those components somewhere else. That's the idea of Lego. That's the idea of meeting market demand without, you know, saying, well, you know, we're just going to reconstruct Ukraine. Yeah, good luck with that. 
right? So what we're doing is putting together and have put together a private sector way of working um, uh, under the guidance and and the um, uh, just uh, uh, advisory from the U.S. Commerce Department that would help us make sure that the Marshall Plan after the hostilities end uh, that was in World War II that the U.S. led. The U.S. is not going to lead this, but we will be a part of it. And the fact that we're private sector makes it a lot easier for us to work with the EU. So that's a real-world example, a real workflow, and a real need of why industrialized construction, modularity, that type of thing. We've gone from the impossible to the inevitable. And I think that's one of the great things about this age, that there is a need we're reimagining that we're not building mobile homes. We're not putting up, you know, Red Cross first aid white tents. We're trying to think through what's the sustainable nature for growth to provide that inspiration, to provide pride again and not be scared, right? And, and have that solution in place once the politics and the wars are over. How do you reconstruct something or maybe you just move on? So it's going to be a very, very interesting discussion. Uh, meeting with the mayors was, was one thing. Meeting with the individual people is another. Hearing their needs, understanding that there are governance issues, but really, you know, what's important to them, uh, you know, now that they have to rethink things? What's their food supply chain? Where's the water coming from? So, yeah, um, it, I don't think this is talked about enough in mainstream media uh, because it's not the hot topic right now. Uh, also, politically, what's going on in Washington with funding and all this stuff, it's not popular to talk about it. But guess what? That's where our industry takes control and says, this is about, hum this is humanitarian. This is about thinking beyond themselves. Again, that abundance model, like let's do the right thing. So the ethics, the morals and everything else that our industry should be embracing is, and what's why what's wild is when I'm telling these stories about Ukraine, everyone is, is transfixed going, we haven't heard it that way before. So I think that, you know, when we're, uh, you know, thinking through what does it mean to be an architect? What does it mean when we have this new delivery system or an emerging redefinition of a delivery system called modularity? Um, I don't think we should shy away from, 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 from a word that I think has grown out of favor in business. But why can't we love something? Why can't we love yourself? Why can't we love another individual? Love a project. Love what you do. Because we're one of three things that keep the human species on this planet alive. And that is fresh water, safe food, and shelter. Everyone in the construction industry should wake up every morning with, with that noble cause that we're keeping the species alive. Imagine that. We're not just some plumber that, you know, bends over and his jeans are too tight or whatever it is, right? The, you know, out of a pickup truck. Guess what? Respect that person. Because they they're doing something for us, and I think if that story is told more, um, we would have a better relationship with the outside world. Um, also, what we do isn't magic. You know, this isn't the Wizard of Oz. It's not like, okay, I want to build an office building. We go, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> you know, that doesn't happen. You know, there's real work and real toughness that needs to go into this and courage. And I think that's probably the operative word for our age. Um, I hope that you know through these types of discussions that people find the courage to just be the best of what they do. And it's such a bigger picture than many of us even realize. And, you know, a lot of us think of, of homes and you know, we talked about cities earlier in New York City and in different places across the United States, but it's so much more. And I'm so glad to use that analogy of the Legos, because especially rebuilding 
an area, a territory, a region such as overseas, you know, what do you do if you build all these buildings? I mean, I think Olympics come to mind when they build out these elaborate, you know, Olympic camps and all these amazing buildings that often sit years after and being able to put it up and then take it back down and then reuse it is is really mind-blowing from, from my standpoint. So clearly a lot of crazy, crazy good and some crazy bad things, maybe challenges with the architectural industry. So with that landscape and everything that you've seen change, what do you see as emerging trends and evolving methodologies? Mm. Which ones do you find most intriguing? And then how do these changes influence our approach to design? And what impact do you foresee on the future of architecture? A couple of things. So we've been working in tech uh, as as a traditional brick and mortar physical asset uh, space since the beginning of my career. I did work study with IBM. I did not do work study in college. Work study is when you take a semester off work and you get internship because uh, internship hours are very important to get your license, right? So most students go and work with big firms or even small firms. And I was going to school in New York City, New York Tech, Manhattan. And what was happening there was uh, I, had, I had good grades, so they offered me this work study. And what that does is that it cuts the amount of hours after you graduate down, right? So you can take your test earlier, but it also means that you're stuck, uh, you know, in extending out your collegiate career. But most people, especially in New York City, would work for a large firm to get the experience. And But what you're really doing is like bathroom details. You know, like you're really not working on fun stuff, but it's it, it's in order to back in the day learn how to draw or CAD or, or building information modeling, which is 3D models. Um, so I decided to join IBM. Reason why was they needed a designer for all their trade show booths. So I had to learn about how a computer went together. So it literally take it apart, put it back together again. How these brand new software companies back in the day, like one was called Adobe. There was this long shot one called Microsoft. I mean baby startups. That's, that's all I am, right? They wanted to see their software on IBM computers because IBM was the only game in town. This is like pre-Macintosh, Apple, right? So by doing that and learning how networks went together, because I had to learn how the computers worked in order to showcase them in a trade show booth. So I learned a lot and I kept on thinking, wow, you know, all these other equipment manufacturers giving motherboards and, and memory and all this stuff, OEMs they're called, isn't that the same thing like what we do in a building? Like, you know, the contractor doesn't build a window. It orders it from Anderson Windows or Marvin Windows or something. And every component in that building is other equipment manufacturing. So the process is the same damn thing as the computer industry. So I've had a, a career-long way of, of looking at the world where buildings will become computers. And when you then connect those computers together, you have the Internet of Buildings which means you're getting into the foundations of machine learning, large language models, where the personification of buildings, they can have personalities, especially through AI. Look at what happens when you actually train Alexa, if you have that type of tool, or Siri inside of your home, right? So these are the baby steps. These are the cow paths of buildings becoming computers. Um, and we're now doing that for real. And what we're doing is experimenting with the nature of data centers, where if we can create every building as a server and they're hosting literally on the outside 
of their, uh, uh, you know, of the face of the facade of, of their buildings. Uh, working with groups like Dell Computer, they could do that in an instant. So now what is the aesthetic? What does that look like in the future where if the building is a computer and it's hosting data, then in a data center, we don't need to be using as much uh, electricity for cooling, which means that the costs come lower. You're doing better for the environment. And most importantly, there are these computers on wheels called a Tesla. It's not an automobile. It's a, it's a computer that moves, right? You're not using 100% of that computing power. So when you go into one of our neighborhoods, it's going to ask you, could we use the computing power that you're not using and be part of our overall way of powering computing power? And you will be rewarded for that. It's a Web3 model. It's not Facebook. It's not Google. It's not these people that take your day and you know what the hell they're doing with it, but making a lot of money off of you. This is a way of now, again, changing the story so that we have a more equitable, we have a more diversified way of thinking through how the data is now going to flow for real. And using, uh, so we're doing this in Dubai um, and we are well on our way in order to make this work. So it's really interesting to look at static data, which are buildings, along with dynamic data, which are these moving computers, these Teslas. So imagine now you're going to be able to make a profit just by driving through these neighborhoods because you're getting paid for the computing power that you're not using. So everyone that doesn't have a Tesla, well, if you want to pay off your car note, just drive through one of our neighborhoods, you probably pay it right off, right? So that's part of the future, you know, of rethinking things. Another thing that is really driving, uh, you know, us is that uh, because of our background with, with tech um, and having sold uh, a lot of our technology over the years that are now industry standards, mostly to Autodesk and IBM, um, and that gave me the courage to actually explore another world, uh, which was uh, I made friends with one of the creators of Google Earth. His name's Remy Arnault. Um, and after he left Google, he joined uh, our firm uh, that allowed us to create then what it wasn't called a gaming engine. It was just a way of taking our 3D models and having people experience it in ways that they never did before. Because up until then, you'd have to have a person do a fly through and you've always seen like those beautiful computer fly throughs what the future is going to look like well this was now a person can, can walk anywhere they want so that drove a lot of the past i'd say since 2008 a lot of our tech so much so that uh, that's how we got involved with smart cities right because people saw that we just not about the one building it's about the contextualization of everything's connected to everything so when we did that and we were able to showcase things like the 2008 beijing olympics uh, the 2010 World Expo in Shanghai, uh, most recently the, the, uh, the Expo 2020 in Dubai. Um, there's this way of looking at those assets as digital assets that are the digital twin of the physical asset. So it's a direct mirror. So you can do things like scenario planning. You can use it for surveillance, for safety, security. You can use it for entertainment. These are the ways that we're now starting to see a life cycle of what we produce as, as, as a job on a contract, which is to create construction documents. Construction documents are now mostly 3D models that you drive all your documentation out of. So it's like a storage facility. But by putting it onto a gaming engine, after that contract is done and after the building is built, you now have the ability to do things like operations, facility management. In the case of how we're now using it with Hollywood, Hollywood now has digital uh, studios made with with mil hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of tiny LED lights. 
So it's like a big screen. So instead of the green screen technology that Hollywood's been using for decades, and then they have a lot of post-production, which is why the cost of movies goes very high, most of it goes away. The Mandalorian did that. Book of Boba Fett. So Disney Plus was the leader in this thing. And they partnered up with Epic Games, the people of Fortnite, and Industrial Light and Magic. And they created these studios called um, Volume. And what happens is you get a 270-degree uh, concave screen along with the ceiling that is literally a big screen. It's like being immersed inside of a stage set, which means my buildings can actually then be put into that particular projection because they're photorealistic. So instead of sending an entire crew to go to, I don't know, Times Square and all the permits and all that expense, it goes away. Plus, the actors love it because they're not acting to a green screen. They're actually in the Millennium Falcon or their own Tatooine, right? So they can act better. And more importantly, the quality that comes out of it, you don't need post-production to do things like reflection, shadow, all this stuff. It's already built into the scene. And most importantly, next scene, hit the enter key. You don't have to go to another stage set. It has saved hundreds of millions of dollars, which is why the quality of Disney Plus, like the Star Wars, things like Mandalorian and everything, they look like movies, don't they? But they're a TV show. Check out TV shows like Star Trek back in the day. <laughs> what? So it, it, it improves the entire thing, and it now provides a life cycle approach to those digital assets. So when you're designing, um, we have to start to talk to the gaming designers more for the built environment. Because just saying that you can take St. Patrick's Cathedral and do a digital twin and put it up for people to use in a game, that may not be the best experience. Why? Because look at the movie Ready Player One. There's a scene where the two, you know, the two heroes go into a nightclub virtually and they walk in and there's gravity and they go over to a bar and have a fake drink, but they go onto the dance floor and there's no gravity. How can we start to learn from that to say, that's cool. Now, how can we learn from that in the physical environment so that we can, we, we can enhance our design process, enhance what we're trying to create? Because... My son and his entire group of friends, they seamlessly move from digital to physical and they don't see a difference, right? It's just another reality. It's another way of looking at virtual worlds. And with the big announcement in Davos uh, that no one knows about, and I'm going, this is huge, that they now have a spatial computing way of creating hyperlinks between 3D worlds. In the same way that the 2D world never really took off with web until they created HTTP, which is hypertext transfer protocol. They now have hyperspatial transfer protocol. We can now move from, from well, the promises that we can move from Minecraft to Roblox to World of Warcraft, uh, uh, the uh, you know uh, uh, League of Legends, all is the same avatar. We finally have cracked it. We're now starting to see the beginning parts of the metaverse. So this is where I'm so excited. I feel like a little kid. I got a white canvas. Everything that was taught, I have to unlearn because this is exciting. And <laughs> funny story. So I do a lot of designing for uh, you know, mega projects, um, you know, Neom, uh, the new Maraba in Saudi. Um, the uh, I'm actually, I've designed Wakanda for South Africa on the coast up near Durban. We're doing some very, very cool projects. And I'll sit there uh, if I'm working from home like like now, and I'll be designing. And my son will walk in. I'm like, hey, you know, I, I want to show you something. What do you think? And he goes, eh. and he walks out. I'm like, what? What? And I have to remember, we're not designing it for us, Michelle. 
we're designing this for the next generation, the generation that's not there yet. So I have to relearn, unlearn, and thrive as a designer that we're no longer just designing the physical world. We have an obligation to actually create the digital world and let them come together because the cyber physical relationship is the next step for the design and construction. And I have an obligation to wrap things up here. I know we could talk for hours about this, but let's jump to the last question because we are running out of time here. So looking forward, envisioning, let's say an ideal architectural process where innovation and sustainability coexist. How can modular design play a pivotal role in supporting this vision? And what steps can architects then take to ensure a future where design excellence aligns seamlessly, if possible, with environmental responsibility? Probably the biggest question of our time. Uh, we, we account as an industry globally for 40% of all the carbon, both in, embedded, embodied, uh, and through demolition. All right. Uh, if we don't like the building, we tear it down. Oh, like, really? So, you know, I think part of that process, and we're going to learn over time, is to see how well the program works in Ukraine, as an example, to say, see, we don't need to demolish, we just need to deconstruct um, and then reuse parts and components. Uh, building product manufacturers aren't going to like that because that cuts down on the amount of crap that they provide us, right? It's all about the numbers. But again, scarcity model, let's start thinking abundance and start thinking differently, uh, you know, that way, because there is a social responsibility to that. Um, as for the environment, you know, there's one of the great things that came out of the past 25, 30 years is this group called the U.S. Green Building Council. Not that I actually enjoy what they've done, which is this thing called LEED, which puts a measure on how well that building was designed, constructed, and operates. Uh, but they rose awareness to the general public going, oh, that's what you guys do. And there's many professionals and contractors and others throughout the world that put a lot of acronyms after their name because they are sustainability architects or they care about the environment. What were you doing before? Do you know what that was called when I went to school? That was called good design. So I don't wear a cape with it. If you're not doing that, you shouldn't be in the business anyway. So if anything, it highlights bad stuff. The thing that the modular world brings, especially factory built product, is I'm going to repeat this again. It creates a quality environment, which means that if you do your design for manufacturing assembly properly, DFMA, that design process will build in things like supply chain where's that raw material coming from why because if you're trucking it over you know 16 states is that really the best material because now you're equating that to the overall carbon of that particular digital uh, digital and uh physical asset so supply chain comes into that distribution you know uh, right now the best that i can do in the united states is a 500 mile radius from the factory so that i'm not again not just about the idea of of uh of of saving the planet. The planet's gonna be fine if, we, if we're here or not as humans. Earth is gonna keep on going on. It's, we gotta be more selfish about, is this spacecraft that we're on, you know, is it gonna sustain itself for how we operate? You know, the horse has left the barn. Climate change is here and it ain't going back in. You can't put it back in. So how do we adapt and adopt? And I think that's the real thing with the world of modular panelization, prefabrication, offsite is that we can control that better, at least for most of the process. And as designers learn about the manufacturing process and how they can put product together, um, it's just a different delivery system. Instead of you know people doing it out in the field, you do it mostly up front, which means that the cost becomes you know a big issue uh, and the risk. 
which is why that 500 mile radius that I talked about to a factory, a lot of that has to do with risk. You know, because when you bring things onto the site, it's not good to leave it around because there's going to be a lot of people, because people are people that don't like the process. Maybe they weren't trained and they're not getting the project. Every year of sabotage happens all the time in the field. Amazing how people come in and don't want, because it's not benefiting them, so it's not going to benefit anyone. That's reality, right? So, you know, yeah, the, the highfalutin stuff that I just talked about for, for most of this call, it gets down to practicalities. Um, you know, it's the reason why I learned when I was working with one of the largest home builders in the world, um, and I was in charge of all land uh, development and home production. Big deal, right? You build the garage first. Not because you love your car. That's where you store all your stuff. If it comes onto the site, you're applying it, and you can lock it up. Otherwise, it disappears. So human nature comes into this. How is, it, is that going to change? Probably not, which means we need to put different processes in place when you're talking about delivering an almost finished product out to the field and then putting it together. So, yeah, we have a lot to learn. I think that, you know, shows like this start the conversation. And I'm hoping that, you know, as, uh, you know, you know, as, as the world matures, uh, that more organizations, you know, like, like Built Modular can help with that implementation phase and understand that you make or you lose money in the field. You can actually make a lot of money while it's in the factory. But again, just supply chain, the supply and demand, the idea of capitalism, the more that product stays on the shelf inside that warehouse of your factory, the more money you're losing. So again, lean construction, understanding the field, understanding these local authorities. This is like a big orchestra that's being led. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how our industry adapts and adopts and thrives. Paul Doherty, president and CEO of TDG, the Digit Group. Paul, amazing conversation. I feel like, and I wasn't joking when I said we could talk about this for a few more hours here, but really enjoyed this conversation. I can almost guarantee you that people listening will want to learn more, ask questions. What can they do? Where can they go? Well, my website, um, which is the digit group, Inc. Inc.com. Um, and I'm all over LinkedIn. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty active on social media that way, uh, only because it's about, again, giving abundance. Um, and uh, the more that we can have conversations, the more that I can learn and the more that we can all learn. Definitely learned something here myself. And I'm sure people out there did as well. Paul, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you all for listening and tuning in to Built Modular, a podcast brought to you by Box Modular. And of course, you can visit the Box Modular website at boxmodular.com for more information there. I'm your host, Michelle Don Moody. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to connect with you on another podcast soon. Mm-hmm.